a long time ago in the city of Rome, the most powerful man in the world sat. He was devoted to building his kingdom, and the world had never seen anything like it. It stretched north all the way to England, south all the way to Africa, and east all the way to Asia. He literally ruled the world. He ruled the nations, and he ruled the rulers of nations. They all bowed down to him. He was the king of kings, the most powerful man who had ever lived, and he was devoted to deepening his power. His army was so strong that it literally went unchallenged. And the world was living in what would become known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it wasn't that everybody wanted to be ruled by Rome. It was just they could do nothing about it. Nobody was a threat to it. It was his power. It was his glory. It was his crown. He was called Caesar Augustus. And still to this day, we talk about an August person, someone whose stature is glorious. We have a month of the year named after him. By the end of his life, people literally worshiped this guy. They bowed down and they worshiped Caesar Augustus. Ever have that happen to you? Ever come into work, go to your cubicle or your office, and you just have co-workers come down and bow down and just say, not worthy, not worthy. <laughs> well, they did that to Caesar. He reigned 2,000 years ago, and his reign, as great as it was in that day, two millennia later, a whole continent and an ocean away from Rome, producers in a town called Hollywood still make movies and television shows about his kingdom, his power, and his glory. Everywhere he looked, that's what he could say. And he was right. Now, it was a bloody kingdom. It was a brutal power. It was a self-worshipping glory, but it was very impressive. And then interestingly enough, one day we're told by the writer of Luke's gospel that one day Caesar had an idea. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. All the world. Now Caesar at that time was approximately 60 years old and perhaps no human being before or after him has held power so dominant. And one day Caesar says to himself, you know, I want everybody to know how large my kingdom is. And I want more money to extend my power and my glory. So he lifts a finger and he says a word and the whole world scrambles, each to his own village, to obey the word of one man. And Luke says, hold on to your seats because something interesting is happening. New Testament scholar Tom Wright puts it like this. He says, this man, this king, this absolute monarch lifts his finger in Rome and 1,500 miles away in an obscure province, a poverty-stricken couple undertakes a hazardous journey all at the whim of a king. Only notice this. A child is born in an obscure little town that Caesar has never happened upon. But it happens to be mentioned in an ancient prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Out of you, Bethlehem, will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people. Caesar lifts a finger and says a word, a word, and a little baby is born in a little town called Bethlehem. And the question of the hour is, 
what king is really at work here? I mean, whose will is really being done? And whose kingdom is it really? You know, it turns out that the story of the world is really just the tale of two cities. Rome is one of them. It's got kingdom and power and glory, very impressive. We see that kind of kingdom around us every day of our lives. People are engaged in this insane scramble to acquire kingdoms and power and wealth and glory. And then there's this other little kingdom, this kingdom called Bethlehem. And the money and the wealth and the status and the palaces and all that, they're over in Rome. All that's in Bethlehem is stable and mangers and donkeys and shepherds. But here is good news on this Advent Sunday. <laughs> the angels were not singing in Rome. They were singing in Bethlehem. Caesar thought that his throne was secure in Rome, as secure as it could possibly be. And I suppose from a human perspective, he was right. But what he didn't know was that there was a real kingdom coming to this earth in a little town. You know, we have this kingdom problem. We do, me included. We think that life is about my kingdom and my power and my glory. One of the best commentaries about this is a little book on political science theories. It's by a theologian named Dr. Seuss. It's called Yertle the Turtle. You ever heard of it? It's a story about a little pond of turtles who were ruled, or so he thinks, by a king turtle named Yertle. And one day, Yertle the turtle decides that his kingdom needs extending. He says, I'm king of all I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. So he began to stack turtles up to be his throne. And this little king lifts his finger, and a whole pond of turtles scramble to obey, or scramble to obey, dozens and then hundreds of them. And they all existed for the sake of his kingdom, his power, and his glory. And then he could see for miles... I am Yertle the turtle, or marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all that I see. Yertle Augustus. And he thought his throne was secure, as secure as it could be, and I suppose in some ways it was. But at the end of the day, his throne turned out to be a turtle power of Babel. And the turtle on the bottom did a plain little thing. He burped. And that burp shook the throne of the king. And today that great yurtle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all that he can see. I'll stop right there and say for the last several months we have been looking at the kingdom of God. By way of the parables of the gospel and the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. And now we've arrived at Advent. We're going to close out this year together by looking at the coming of the king, the one we know as Emmanuel. We're going to look at the significance of this season, but we're going to do something interesting. We're going to use the words of Jesus himself as found at the end of his most famous prayer, the prayer he taught to his disciples, the Lord's Prayer. All of you probably know it. The way that it ends is this way. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now what's interesting about this passage, some of you know this, is that in some translations in Scripture, this is actually a footnote. 
It's not even in some of the ancient manuscripts. But these words were used, friends. They were the practice of the church within the first century of Jesus. And almost certainly his prayer ended with these words, or very, words very much like them, because we have a problem. And this verse points out primarily what our problem is. It's a threefold problem. We have a kingdom problem. We have a power problem. And we have a glory problem. Today, we're going to look at just the kingdom problem. You know, the truth be told is, I want to build a little kingdom. I may not talk about it. I may not share it a lot with my family or my friends. But I would love to have a little kingdom under my control. The truth is, we all want life to be about us. We want to be in charge. Some people are bold and obvious like Caesar, and some people are very sneaky and subtle about this. For example, we walk into work. We want to see our projects done. I know I do. I want to see things being run the way I want them ran. People doing what I told them to do. Projects being done. Tasks that I have assigned being carried out. What that means is, is I'm in charge. I'm the boss. My little kingdom. You go into your kid's room. Beds are made just as you prescribed. Chores are being done just like I commanded. What does it mean? It means I'm in charge of my little kingdom. I am the boss. I walk in the door at the end of the day and iced tea is ready and dinner is on the table and the remote control is placed right in my hand. What does this mean? Now I walked into the wrong house. <laughs> right? <laughs> that doesn't happen in my kingdom. <laughs> See, here's the truth about us, friends. Some of us are obvious and bold. Some of us are sneaky and subtle. But we're all about kingdom building. My agenda, my comfort, my money, my sources, my lifestyle, my achievements, my career, my opportunities, my security. But here's the deal. Someday, somewhere, some little turtle is going to burp. Maybe in life, maybe when this life is over. But I'm going to learn ultimately the truth about which kingdom is in control. And I want you to know this morning, he does not live in Rome. And he doesn't live in Washington or on Wall Street or in Hollywood. There is a kingdom at work in this world. And it is not particularly visible. It doesn't always look very impressive. You probably even wonder sometimes whether or not you can really trust living in that kingdom. But I want you to know today that Jesus says, Your kingdom, not my kingdom, God. You see, it's in these words that we surrender Remember how the prayer starts? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. What he's saying is we pray, God, may I give up the folly of trying to construct a life without you and without your agenda. And we say, God, will you use me and will you allow me to give and serve? And God, every time I forget that truth, I'll come back and I'll bend my knee and I'll repent and I'll say, God, your kingdom come your will be done. So the question of the day in this Christmas really is the question of this season. Is where are you trying to construct your own little kingdom? Where have you been trying to build up a little throne? Have you got any fears that are kind of gripping you that just won't let you uh, release them so that you can go on and let his kingdom come in your life? 
I wonder how the world would have been different. Isn't it amazing? I wonder if Caesar would have found some way, just if he'd have found some way to get to Bethlehem, maybe even just in his heart, and if he would just knelt down at the floor of the manger and surrendered to Jesus. Someone sent this to me recently. It said, God is in charge. He uses all the cacophony of human frenzy. He laughs at our plans, silently, unobtrusively, unseen, unheard. He works out purposes that shake and rattle and roll and turn our world upside down and inside out. We build our little kingdoms and call other people to come and look at them and see them and go, wow. And then they crumble into dust and God uses the rubble of human disaster to build a kingdom of redeemed beauty and unimagined splendor. I'll tell you how in charge God is. He is so in charge that he can use evil kings and he can use evil kings who don't even know that they're being used. And the foundation and the foundation on which he is building this kingdom was lying in a manger in Bethlehem. It is about Jesus. It is about him. Here's something to think about. Oftentimes we get to this time of the season and we'll hear people say, and there's nothing wrong with this, but we'll hear people say, how are you going to do Christmas this year? What they usually want to know is, you know, which family are you going to, you know, which one you're going to have to be with the most, that kind of stuff. What I want you to know this year is that Christmas has already been done. You do not have to worry about doing Christmas. His kingdom has already slipped into this world and the very best part of it is that this peace and this glory and this jaw-droppingly unforeseeable idea that made the angels sing from wonder and awe is that God himself would sneak down to earth and wrap himself in human frailty and weakness. So this morning, this message and this series that we're starting is not about us. It's not about a challenge to do anything, say anything, sing anything, give anything, sign up for anything. It's not about us. There came a decree from Caesar. And I want you to know that God was up to something when Caesar acted. God was up to something when the angels started singing. God was up to something that made, listen, the wise men seek. God was up to something when the shepherds began to shake. God was up to something when Mary and Joseph embarked on that journey. And all we're going to do in these next few moments here before we leave is we're going to figure out what was the best part of God sneaking down to earth. I mean, there's so many great parts about it. It's just mind-boggling, to be honest with you. But what was the best part of what we call the incarnation? Now, here's one thing, and this is awesome, is that God, who is infinite, is now defined to space. Think about this. The infinite God is confined to space. The way the psalmist David said it was, Lord, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there in your hand will guide me wherever I go, wherever I look, wherever I think. God, you are everywhere. God is kind of like a three-year-old. You just cannot shake him. But now, the infinite God 
is somehow confined to the body of a tiny little baby. And he who occupied the whole world, the whole universe, will have to learn how to walk. He'll only be able to go as far as his two little feet will carry him. He who was able to speak worlds into existence will now have to learn how to talk. He'll have to learn how to slowly make things with his hands. He'll have to go through all the difficulties and all the pain that people have to endure in their bodies. Now think about this. He will have headaches. He can get the flu. He'll be clumsy and awkward. Sometimes his body will be tired. Sometimes he will be cut and it will actually hurt and bleed. He will have to go through middle school years. Remember those years? Oh, and the angels look at the infinite God as he limits himself to a human body and they say, this is amazing. But that's not even the best part. Another aspect is that the eternal God is now going to be confined to time. Now this one is hard for us to understand because we're human. But up until this time, the way the psalmist says it is a thousand years in your sight or like a day that's gone by, like a watch in the night, you live in eternity. <laughs> that was his existence from the beginning of creation. Now he's got to live in time. Now he will have to do what we have to do. He'll have to learn how to wait. Robbie just brilliantly pointed this out about communion. We'll have to wait. He'll feel the frustration that every child feels having to grow up one day at a time. He'll have ungratified desires. He'll wait for meals to be cooked. He'll wait to get to play with his friends. He'll wait to stay up late at night like older people. He'll have to wait for Christmas even though Christmas is all about him. You ever seen a child waiting for Christmas? It's brutal. But the angels see the eternal God is confined to time. But that's not the best part. <laughs> the angels see also that the Lord of all creation will have to learn to submit to others. Absolute authority practices submission. Throughout all of eternity, he has been the master. The psalmist says nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. And friends, there's no melting earth now. Now he would have, listen, a mother and a father whom he would obey every day of his life. Anybody here ever had a strong-willed child? Anybody? Was any of your kids strong-willed? Are you all normal? What? Story about two parents had this strong three-year-old little girl, strong-willed. She's out on a tricycle. Her mother was challenging her and watching her through the window. She kept saying to her, listen, don't travel further than the neighbor's driveway because I can't see you. I can only see you out the picture window, and if you get further than that, I can't look at you anymore. So here's the deal, hon. Don't go past the neighbor's driveway. If you do, I'm going to have to come out and discipline you. Do you understand? Yes. Mom said, do you have anything else you want to say? She said, Yes. You better punish me now, Mama, because I'm going to the other side. <laughs> Imagine being Jesus' mom and dad. 
He has known ultimate authority through all eternity. Now he submits. Now they tell him when to go to bed, when he gets up, what he can do, what he can't do. He have to submit to others. The king of the universe will have to work in a carpenter shop helping his dad pound nails. You know, we get all amped up in this country about career paths and organizational charts. Think about this one. The master of the universe becomes a carpenter's assistant. <laughs> Friends, that's a demotion. <laughs> now he's born into a family that is so poor. Let me tell you how poor this family was, that when he is born, they cannot even afford a lamb to sacrifice for their firstborn child. That's how poor they were. So there was a provision that they had to take advantage of that if you were really, really poor, you could buy just a couple of doves instead. Later on, Paul would write this, and I love this. He says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, could become rich. You often hear of this uh, rags to riches story. Remember, you read them all the time in magazines. Let me tell you something about Christmas. Christmas is a riches to rags story. But even that's not the best part. The angels look on as the God who has lived in perfection, as the God who has only known perfection, takes on human suffering, and absolute perfection takes on sin. Jesus would weep at the death of a friend. He who had only been worshipped, was now mocked by cynics and hypocrites, rejected and despised by people. He took so much more in the way of external hostility, but he also took all of our inside stuff, worry and fear and loneliness. At one point, Jesus says in his life he was troubled, and he uses the word trouble to describe unbelievable anguish. That's what he took on for you and for me. He took on our suffering and our punishment he took on the shoulders the sin of mankind. He took upon his cause all of the black sheep, or as Eugene Peterson translates it, all the wayward sheep. That's all the stuff behind this incarnation story. But even that, believe it or not, is not the best part of the story. I'm going to tell you the best part, but I'll tell you by way of this story. When I was just a kid, my family, as most of you know, lived in nearby Plant City. And in case you're wondering if anything good can come out of Plant City, it can. <laughs> Not necessarily me, but some good stuff has come out of there. I was a huge baseball fan as a kid. And one of the major league teams at that time, the Texas Rangers, had their spring training facility at a place called Sandstone Park. Now, the Rangers didn't really have a lot of big-name stars but from time to time, they would play practice games against other teams. And one of those teams happened to be the Pittsburgh Pirates. And at that time, the Pirates had one of my all-time favorite players by the name of Willie Stargell on it. If you know anything about baseball, you know Willie Stargell played his entire career in Pittsburgh and was voted in the Baseball Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. I was probably around 10, maybe 11 years old at the time, and one day I rode out to the park on my bike and I was surprised to find out that the Pirates were playing the Rangers in a practice game. 
And I waited by the fence, and I looked out through the fence, and there he was on first base, Willie Stargell. I could not believe it. I stood there the entire time, and I watched the game. And when it was over, both of the teams headed into their respective clubhouses. And I knew I had to act fast, so I rode over to the clubhouse, and I hung outside, and I was just hoping, just hoping and waiting that Willie Stargell would walk out so I could meet him, maybe even get an autograph. Eventually, one of the coaches walked out, and they saw me standing there, wanted to know what I was doing, and I told them that I was hoping to see Willie Stargell. He said, well, Willie Stargell's in a meeting. He wouldn't be done for a while, but if I'd wait, he'd go back in and let him know that somebody was waiting on him. Friends, I sat there forever, <laughs> hoping, praying that Willie Stargell would come out. I waited and waited and waited. And finally, I realized that that coach was probably just being nice. Never even told Willie that there was a kid outside. I knew I had to get home, so I crawled on my bike and started to pedal away. And just as I did, I heard these glorious words. Hey, kid, are you a pirate fan? I turned and I looked and I beheld the glory. <laughs> the glory of a major leaguer full of power and a high slugging percentage. It was Willie Stargell. He had left the clubhouse meeting for me. He said, I'm sorry it took me so long. And he just asked me a couple questions about play baseball, what position I play, blah, blah, blah. And then he patted me on the head. He said, keep playing ball, kid. We need good ball players. Never forget it. And here's the deal. All the way home, all I could think of was, Willie Stargell came out of the clubhouse for me. Didn't have to, but he did something just for me. If you do not understand anything about Christmas other than this, I want you to know that the Word became flesh and the eternal became time and the infinite restricted himself to a body and omnipotence became weakness and perfection became sin. But here's the best part. Jesus came for you. Listen to me. He left the clubhouse for you one day. Maybe you know him right now. Maybe you're in a personal relationship with him right now. Maybe things are all jacked up in your life and you don't understand anything about spirituality and which way you're even headed. It does not matter. He came for you. God is at work in this kingdom and things may not be going your way or things may be going your way. You may be Yertle Augustus. <laughs> you could be way up here or you could be the bottom little turtle at the end of the stack. It doesn't really matter because one day there went out a decree and out of Bethlehem came a Savior. And we beheld His glory, not Caesar's glory, not somebody sitting on a throne far away, not a bloody uncertain peace, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, there's a paraphrase of this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. His translation of the last part of this prayer says, Because you are the one in charge, you have all the power, and the glory too is all yours forever, which is exactly the way we want it. <laughs> and Dallas writes, he says, Just the way we want it is not a bad paraphrase for amen. 
He says, what is needed at the end of this great prayer is the ringing affirmation of the goodness of God in God's world. And if your nerves can take it, you might occasionally try whooping and hollering at the end of it. I'm sure God won't mind, he says. Most of you know I grew up in a Pentecostal environment, so it is not hard for me to imagine at all what it would be like if people started hooping and hollering. <laughs> a little harder to imagine now, but I'll tell you something, friends. During the Christmas season, we have to do something to get these words off of spiritual autopilot. We have to find some way to express these words and thoughts anew. We have to use our minds and our bodies and the arts and the music and every gift that God has given us so that we can express this transforming prayer. It is His kingdom and His power and His glory. I love the opening line. It says, Our Father who is all around us, hallowed be your name. May your name be treasured. And you think about this. One day it will be. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about this name. Luke tells us that the life of a man named Jesus was ended just as it began by a decree from Caesar. You know, the end of his life, it was crucify him, crucify him. Now, you understand, Caesar didn't make that decree personally. It was made by one of his lower-level bureaucrats, but it was done in his name by Caesar's soldiers to protect Caesar's glory, to protect his kingdom. Also that his rival, Jesus, could be killed. So interesting enough, Luke the historian tells us that Jesus' life began when, G when Caesar decreed in Bethlehem. And interestingly enough, Jesus' life ended when Caesar decreed at Calvary. But again, who's really doing the decreeing? Paul later on says it was another king that chose, and this was Jesus. He says that Jesus, being in his very nature God, humbled himself and was born in Bethlehem, and he walked this earth, the most glorious human life that has ever lived on this planet, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But that is not the end, because then it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. The name that one day, one day according to Matthew's gospel will be hallowed. For at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And let me ask you, how much territory does that cover, friends? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, in our day his name is not hallowed very, more, very much anymore. We ignore it. We curse one another with it. We use it to profane. But one day the king will lift his finger, listen, and a whole lot of thrones that seem real secure. A whole lot of turtles who seem like they have control of everything are going to hit the mud. I want you to picture this scene with this. All humanity, every creature who has ever lived from Adam until the very end of time, Scripture says is going to bow down in acknowledgement of his kingdom, his power, and his glory. You think about that. Listen, even if this is metaphorical, think about it. Every president who has ever lived, every CEO who has led every company in this world, every movie star who has ever graced a magazine cover, every billionaire that has ever had a fabulous fortune, 
will be on bended knee. People we know and we read about who now sit on the thrones in our day, whether their current beliefs now line up with Christ or not, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, will bow. Oprah will bow. LeBron James will bow. Bill Gates and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and yes, Donald Trump will bow. Knees that did not do much bending on earth will bend one day. Napoleon and Adolf Hitler will bow. Osama bin Laden will bow. Caesar Augustus, old Caesar, who sent out a decree that all the world should be taxed, would become before this little child and he will bow. Herod, Herod, who we'll talk about next week, who put out the word that he was looking for this child and would have gladly run him through with a sword, who did kill other babies in the hopes of killing this one, will find out that, you know what? Death really isn't a big deal for Jesus. Pontius Pilate, who didn't want to do wrong, but he didn't want to do right, he'll find out that there will be a day when you just can't wash your hands and look the other way. And all the characters we read about, Pharaoh, Goliath, Jezebel, King Ahab, they will bend, they will bow. There will be others. Billy Graham will bow. Mother Teresa, Moses, Abraham, Ruth, Esther, Peter, Paul. Get this, Phil Grimes will bow. Robbie Waddell will bow. Josh Galetta and Carol Aronaga will bow. The person sitting next to you, the person sitting next to that person, the person sitting next to the next to that person. Your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. And some will bow under duress and they will bow grudgingly and resentfully and stiffly. And others, listen, they will bow down in adoration. And they will be so overwhelmed with love and joy for the sheer goodness of God. But one way or another, the day is coming. As sure as this day came, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the great thing about it is, is that today is our day. We don't even have to wait for that day. We can come right now and we can bow and we can cherish and we can hallow the name of our Savior. For there is no other name on earth given by which man can be saved. For God has given him a name that is above every name. And his name is Jesus. And so today we say your kingdom, your power, and your glory, God. We bow down.